Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you think of the history of the Royal Air Force, you think of the Dam Busters, the Battle of Britain, and the almost unbelievable losses of Bomber Command. But you rarely focus in on the individual stories, and you hardly ever focus in on the individual stories of Britain's black airmen. Well, I'm your host James Rogers, and for today's episode of Warfare, I wanted to celebrate the inspiring contribution black airmen have made to British aviation. As author and historian Kandasi Chabiri explains, from pilots to ground crew and with tales from across the globe, the story of Britain's black airmen is an important part of the history of flying, one that actually goes back to before the First World War. Enjoy. Hi Kandasi, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you James. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast because you've got a new book out called The Story of Britain's Black Airmen with amazing illustrations by the Grenadian illustrator Elizabeth Lander and each one of those really helps to bring this history to life. But tell us, what made you want to write this book now? I actually didn't want to write the book now. I wanted to write the book several years ago. (laughs) It's always the case. (laughs) I wrote a book called The Story of the Windrush, and it was a self-published book originally. And I wrote it to come out in 2018 to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the arrival of the Empire Windrush ship at Tilbury Docks in June 1948. And I wrote the book, I self-funded it, had it published, chose all the photos, did everything. And the book arrived, I was really excited. And I was looking at the book one day, and I was looking at this photo that I had chosen to go into the book. I chose the photo because it showed a group of men on board the Empire Windrush when it had just arrived. And I chose it because there was a gentleman in the photo called Sam King, He was standing at the back of the group, right at the back, and he looked kind of shy. And I just really loved that photo, and I chose it because he was in it, and I had talked about him in the book. And that was the only reason, and my only focus for choosing that photo. And then I was looking at it, and I saw that there was a tall black man in RAF uniform in the same photo, and he was at the front of the group. And I had seen him before, but my mind at the time was so focused on Sam King and the arrival of the Windrush that I hadn't really been giving any thought to the fact that, I mean, I mentioned it in the book and I knew that Sam King 
had served as ground crew during the Second World War, but I really wasn't putting a lot of thought into that side of the story. I was more focused on the Windrush generation, the story from 1948 roughly onwards, not about the contributions people had made during the Second World War. But as I looked at that photo and I realised that I knew who that man was, and I realised that the tall black man in the RAF uniform was Johnny Smythe, and I knew that he had been a navigator for the RAF during the Second World War. I knew that he'd been shot down. I'd heard a little bit about him. And then I just became fascinated, maybe a bit obsessed with the photo. I just kept looking at it and I was just thinking, this is so amazing. I mean, even there are others in the photo as well, but I was just so amazed that I could see two men who I knew had really interesting histories, really interesting life stories. One was still in uniform, one had obviously, you know, already, already been demobbed. One had served as ground crew, one had served as air crew, but both had served during the Second World War. And I just was thinking about the connections of their lives in that moment. And that's when I got the idea that we needed to have a book about the contributions of black airmen during the Second World War. So that's how the idea started, from a photo in an existing book. I love that because it's so strange. But here on this podcast, we've actually done an episode that focused in, took a deep dive in to the history of Flight Lieutenant John Smythe, OBE. And we had his son, Eddie, on the pod. And I mean, the history is remarkable. I became absolutely hooked by it. Not only was he an RAF navigator from Sierra Leone who was shot down and captured by the Nazis, but his post-war history is almost as fascinating, more fascinating than his wartime history because he trains as a barrister. He has this leadership role on Empire Windrush. And then he goes on to have uh, this time as Queen's Counsel and as the Attorney General of Sierra Leone. He even goes on to meet JFK. So a remarkable man, a remarkable history. And it's actually because of this that, you know, I become fascinated with this history of Britain's black airmen. I want to do a, a deeper dive. So we've got an expert like you on the podcast. And it's funny that we start with this same figure. Now, when we're looking at this particular history, then, if we do want to do this deeper dive into the broader history, where is it that we should start? Is it in the Second World War or the First World War? Where do you start when looking into this? Well, when I started at first, I was only going to start with the Second World War. And as well as 2018 being the you know 70th anniversary of the arrival of the Windrush ship, it was also the year of the 100th anniversary of the RAF. So 2018. Yes, absolutely. RAF 100. And so that was my starting point, and my, I was very disappointed as well to see that we had all these RAF 100 celebrations and lots of books and TV programs, and I saw no mention of Britain's Black Airmen during the Second World War. I didn't see any of this, and, you know, and a few mentions that I did see, some of them were actually incorrect. They got nationalities wrong, so it was disappointing. So that was actually where I was going to start. But then as I started to do the research, I realized that although not many, there were some earlier black airmen. And I thought it wouldn't be right to just limit the story to be only about the navigators. I thought there were others as well. There were many men who served during the Second World War as ground crew. And then, as I said, there were also earlier airmen. And so I realized I should start at the beginning and start at the beginning of aviation in Britain. 
and there were black men contributing from the very beginning. Not many, as I said, but they were there. So I felt I had to change the focus of the book slightly. Okay, so you say the start of air power in Britain. Well, arguably, air power starts for the first time in 1903 with Orville and Wilbur Wright down in, I think it was one of the Carolinas, when they do their first ever flight. When does this history start in Britain then? The earliest airman I've traced, who is of African ancestry, is 1913, so 10 years. Wow. Yeah, so very early. And the RFC, Royal Flying Corps, was formed, I think, in 1912. And this gentleman, Alexander Patterson, joins in 1913. So he's there from the beginning. That's incredible. All right, I want to hear all about Alexander Patterson. What's his role? What does he do? So Alexander Patterson is an interesting person to know about because he isn't coming like most of the airmen from other parts of the empire. He's actually black and British. He's born here. His mother was a white English nurse who used to work for the royal family for a short time. And his father was a mariner from Barbados because obviously we have these connections between the sea and port cities and, you know, that, which has obviously happened for hundreds of years as part of Britain being the centre of an empire. And he's born here. He grew up in Southampton and he works around the docks. He does different jobs, but he also spends five years studying mechanical engineering and when he finishes studies he then applies to join the RFC and he's accepted so he joins in 1913 so just a couple of years just a year or so before the first world war and he joins on the technical side and this would obviously be at the time a new technology and that's how he is already contributing outside of warfare that is incredible and like you say prior to the First World War. Okay, so he's got a technical background. He goes in, I'd say, as an engineer, I guess? Yes. Okay, so what's his role during the First World War? Very hard to know exactly what he did. I mean, I have been able to verify, you know, his progression. He is being promoted quite quickly. He is contributing, but it's really difficult to know exactly what he did. I don't think he was a combat pilot. Almost certainly he is contributing on the technical side. He does get sent back to Britain after about a year in France. And his role seems to have been helping other men who are going to be combat pilots to understand engines, to understand what sounds to listen for when they're flying in the planes. And obviously planes at that time are very dangerous. They're so dangerous. Yeah. When you look into some of the histories of those planes, they would stall in midair and then you'd have yes. to reset. And it, I mean, yeah. I'm going a bit over the top, but almost rebuild the engine yes. as you're like plummeting to earth. And so Alexander's role would have been preparing these pilots for kind of hearing all the weird things that this new engine, this new technology is doing. Yeah. I mean, when I was looking into this, because I didn't really know a whole lot, I'm not coming from any technical background myself. When I read some of this, I just thought, are these people really thinking? They're getting in these planes. They were so unsafe at that time. And I just thought, wow, but that's what they did. So that's the history. Well, they were certainly daredevils. Um, I, was, I was looking to the history of General H.H. H. Arnold, who ends up being the first head of the U.S. Air Force. He's one of these pioneers of air power. And he started off wanting to be a pilot, but he had this like near-death experience where his plane was crashing to earth and he just about restarted a, a stalling engine. And he landed it and then vowed never to fly again. I think he might have gone up in a plane once or twice 
afterwards. But he actually moved himself to a kind of backroom admin role. Mm. So uh, it's certainly not the role I would have wanted. No. So, yeah, so this is um, Alexander Patterson. And what I thought was quite fascinating about him as well was that his story wasn't even known to some people who are his descendants. His story came to life maybe in the 70s or 80s when his now, um, that would be his grandson, was doing the family tree and then found out about his grandfather and then he traced down some of the family who were in Southampton and had some more of the information. So not all of the family actually even knew about this man and his contributions. Well, we're really glad that you're able to do that deep dive into his history because that could have well been lost to time. So it's great to see it documented. Now, in regard to this, I can imagine that there weren't many black airmen in what would later become the Royal Air Force, but was the Royal Flying Corps at this point. But were there others in the Royal Flying Corps during the First World War? I would say certainly yes, there would be. Even since writing the book, I have been seeing more and more photos that people have been sending me or they've seen online, you know, those postcards that they used to do. And sometimes you can see black airmen there. Now, sometimes it's difficult to tell the exact ethnicity, you know, are they African, are they Caribbean? They could also be South Asian. But we could certainly see that there are men in these photos who are not all white. So definitely there are others and we don't know their names and their histories. I don't think that they necessarily would have been loads and loads, but they are there and they are integrated. They are serving alongside white airmen as well. But as to how many, you know, even Alexander Patterson, his race wasn't recorded. It's only because of the family doing the family tree. And then we can obviously trace like his service number. We can trace everything that he did and then going and obviously the family who did know about him, they still had his records and, and that's how it all came to life. So almost certainly there would have been more, but how many? Hard to say. I was reading the book. I've read the book. I can recommend the book. There's one person that really stuck out to me. It was Sergeant Pilot Robinson Clark. Mm. Can you tell us about Robbie? Yeah, now Robbie is someone that I think people have known about for a couple of years. They didn't really know about Alexander Patterson. They're, they are different, although they're serving at the same time, because Alexander Patterson is obviously black and British. He's born here, which makes him interesting. Um, Robinson Clark is coming from Jamaica, which obviously is part of the empire. And he comes when the war breaks out. So he's coming after when we do expect more opportunity for men who are not white to have a chance to serve. And he, at the time, was a mechanic and a chauffeur. Well, he was a chauffeur, but he could also fix cars, it would seem, while he was in Jamaica. I don't know exactly who he drove. It's been very difficult to find out. Even speaking to people and some of his descendants, they're not sure, but we know that he was a chauffeur and we know that he wanted to come to Britain. He didn't join the BWIR. It seems that he did have in his mind that he wanted to serve in the air service. That seems to have been in his mind. Not, I don't know whether as a pilot or not, but that seems to be what he wanted to do. So he comes with letters that are written by some of the leading businessmen in Jamaica recommending his skills. So like Alexander Patterson, he had skills that are very valuable at that time, mostly very rare because he can drive a car. And he comes over 
he may have funded it himself, or maybe he may have had some help from some of the businessmen who wanted to help him to come over to serve. So he does come and he goes to the RFC and he is accepted and he goes out to France and he's serving in a capacity as a driver. But at some point, he's obviously successful in being selected to be trained as a pilot. And so he becomes a pilot and he becomes a combat pilot. Wow, that is incredible. So he is up in the air in his flying machine over the battlefields. Yes. Do we know anything about his time as a pilot during the First World War? Yes, we know quite a lot because he wrote letters back home to his mother in Jamaica. And some of those letters and some of his exploits were mentioned in the Jamaican Gleaner at the time. So the Gleaner was obviously, you know, very patriotic. You know, they were encouraging men to go and serve Britain during its time of need. And so they're proud of the fact that Jamaicans are serving. So these are being reported in the newspapers and they print some of the letters as well. And then some of the letters are also in the archives and some are also in the RAF Association in Jamaica. They also have some of his letters and some of this information as well. But basically he is a pilot and he is, as they were doing at that time, mainly doing reconnaissance, although of course there will still be dogfights. He does get shot up a few times. His plane gets shot up a few times and then it was obviously the time when he does get wounded and yeah, quite badly wounded, although he did recover. But after that, that's the end of his flying in a combat role. I mean, sometimes at this point, it's crazy to think that, you know, they could be firing with a rifle or a pistol out of the plane at each other. They could be throwing bombs over the edge of planes. It really wasn't a highly skilled science at this point. It was lobbing things over the edge or taking your gun out and shooting at people. But very dangerous, but still very, very dangerous. Oh, my word. Incredibly dangerous. And that is highlighted by one of the quotes from Robbie that you include in the book. And I'm going to have to read it out because and you know my eyes opened wide as I was reading it. He says, I was doing some photographs over enemy lines. And he says, when about five German scouts came down upon me and before I could get away, I got a bullet through the spine. He then managed to pilot the machine nearly back to the aerodrome, but had to put her down as I was too weak to fly anymore. My observer escaped without any injury. Now, not only does that highlight just how dangerous it was to be a pilot at that point, I mean, he got a bullet in the bloody spine, but also he's a bit of a hero. He is a hero. And that's why I, you know, just thought, well, he also has to be included in the book. And why don't we know more about him? And why has he been so forgotten? I couldn't agree more. Well, let's go through some more of these histories. Now, take us from this time of the Royal Flying Corps through to the period of the RAF, when the Royal Air Force, the world's first independent air force, is formed. Who should we focus on in this period? So in this period, there is actually now a reduction in the opportunities for black airmen because, you know, 1918, you have the First World War now coming to an end. So you don't need so many men on the whole. You don't need so many aircraft. So now you are finding that the RAF, again, is becoming a little bit, you know, perhaps more elite, as it were. I think when you have war, you have more opportunity for people who might not have that opportunity before. It's a sad fact, but it's true. So I actually found that those men who wanted to fly were actually learning to fly in Canada or in the US, ironically. So that's why that little chapter in the book 
I had to put that in, but airmen from the Caribbean are going to America or Canada and they're not huge numbers, but that's where they learn to fly more than in Britain. And so does this mean that when we start to pick up this story again in terms of Britain's black airmen, we start to look at the Second World War, again a time of supreme emergency where we have to call on everybody in a total war scenario to serve in order to to save the country and survive? Yeah, and I think there's this idea that Britain stood alone, and I understand where the idea comes from, and I know it's a very popular idea, but I think we have to be honest that Britain was never completely alone. Maybe they were alone in Europe, but they had an empire, and it's people from that empire who are coming to help Britain. And look, the airmen, the number of black airmen that served is a small number. You know, when you take it as a percentage of the number of people who were in the RAF, you know, by the end of the Second World War, I know it's only a small number we're talking about, but they did still contribute. So we do still have about 6,000 airmen coming to serve during the Second World War. And out of that number, about 500 are air crew and about 5,500 are ground crew. But it's still not an insignificant number. It's not one or two. We're still talking about, you know, a few thousand men. And some of these men get killed, they get shot down, like you said with Johnny Smythe. You know, a couple of them become prisoners of war as well. They're having all the same experiences as the white British men. And we really have to pick that story up and make sure we always include them when we're writing these histories about the Second World War and about the airmen, because they were part of it. Well, tell us about some of these figures. Tell us about Cy Grant. Cy Grant, yes. So he was someone that I had heard about before, but I didn't know much about him until I started to do the research for the book. But I think he is a good example because he actually was one of the men that wrote himself. I think with a lot of the airmen of any background, after the, you know, after the war, they often didn't talk about their experiences. They did it and then that was it. They just went on with their lives. And a lot of them didn't leave autobiographies. You know, most of them, we won't really know everything that happened to them. But he was a little different. He did write an autobiography. He did write about his experiences and he wanted people to remember that there were black airmen during the Second World War like him. And he came from Guyana, at that time known as British Guyana, because it's part of the British Empire. He comes in 1940. He says he came because he wanted to escape the monotony and the boredom of being in a colonial society. And he wanted to fly. You know, these airmen, like everyone else, they're excited about flying. And he comes over and he isn't made a pilot. He becomes a navigator instead. And he's shot down on his third mission over Holland. And he also spends some time in a prisoner of war camp before the war comes to an end. And when he comes back to Britain, he actually becomes reasonably well known because he's on TV and so on. But people don't really realize that he was during the war. I think that he was an airman during the war. I think people just saw him as an entertainer. And lots of people said, oh, I see you on TV. Oh, I didn't know that he was an airman. I didn't know they had any black airmen, and much less one that was shot down. So he was someone that I felt was really good to include in the book. And he's actually written a lot himself about his experiences and his feelings as well. What did he do on TV? He used to play in this program, apparently, where he sang Calypso. He didn't want to do it, but apparently he was in this program. And then he was in this other thing with puppets that people all seem to know. And he did some movies. He was in a movie with John Collins. And oh, wow. He, yeah, he was quite a successful actor and singer. 
But he does say, he always said that it wasn't what he wanted to do. He actually also qualified to be a barrister, but he said he couldn't find work because of the racism in Britain at the time. And that's one of the interesting things for me. A lot of these men did study law. He studied law, Errol Barrow, John Smythe, as you said, as well, Billy Strachan. So many of them studied law and went on to use their legal skills to help with independence movements or civil rights movements here. And I think he wanted to do that as well, but he wasn't successful. And so entertainment wasn't his first choice, but he did live from that and did quite well from it. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered in that Deptford Inn? Was Amy Dudley, wife of Elizabeth I's favourite Robert, pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Were the Guise that great French family, actually bloodthirsty murderers who secured their power through ruthlessness and violence. And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me, but not on an empty stomach, for not just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. (laughs) 
what was life like for a black airman in the RAF during the Second World War? Because I've just come back from the uh, Tuskegee training fields, Motion Field actually, over in Alabama. And one of the things that I found fascinating there was the person in charge of that site made sure that it wasn't segregated. But as soon as they went off to main training in the US Army Air Force, they were most certainly still segregated. That was one of the issues with the US military during the Second World War, as many others. Yeah. But was it different in the RAF? It was different because the men were not segregated. So all of these men are serving in integrated units. They're serving alongside white men. They're doing the same jobs as them. The RAF, we have to be honest, is more advanced than the other branches of the services because they are, you know, accepting black men now, whereas it was a lot harder and especially to get in positions of authority, you know, with the army and the navy. But I think we often are guilty of comparing ourselves to America and Tuskegee Airmen and saying, well, look, they were segregated, they were treated like this, blah, blah, blah. We didn't do that, so we were great. And I don't think we really were great. And I think we do need to look at this history again. There were some men that did have very bad experiences, and they have talked about those. And there were many who didn't have bad experiences, and many of them do speak very fondly of their time in the RAF during the Second World War. But we also have to realise that this was a time when there was a colour bar. There were places that they couldn't go. And sometimes it wasn't just the fact that they were treated badly directly. Sometimes it was the indirect discrimination or just being ignored. Many of the men became navigators, and it's questionable why didn't more of them become pilots? Did they not have the ability to become pilots? Were there questions, or was there some hesitance that maybe they didn't want them to be in charge of the, you know, the whole crew, which included white men? So there were questions like that as well. They did sometimes face racism, and it wasn't only from Americans. You know, there were issues with white service men who were over at the time from America. But sometimes they did have issues with other men as well who were British and the general public as well. So I think it's something that I would like to see historians looking at again. And I'd like to see some more writing about it. So I think there's just been this idea that, yes, we didn't tolerate that here and it was all great. And I don't think it really was great. But I also think that for me, one of the things I also find interesting is how people in the past viewed things. I don't want to say that they accepted things, but I feel that they were born into a world where there were certain ideas about who you were because of your colour, because of your race, because of your nationality, because of your gender, because of your class. And I think that was just how the world sort of was. So when they were treated a certain way, I don't think they felt it was necessarily right, but perhaps they may not have complained about it as much as we might today. I think that also has to be taken into consideration. So take, for example, Errol Barrow. When he comes over, he comes over as part of what we call the second contingent. So Barbados sends these two official contingents, the first one. And this is the Second World War, right? This is the Second World War, yeah. So the first contingent is a group of men, and they're all white Barbadian men, no black men, they're all white Barbadian, and they come over and they're going to serve in all branches of the armed forces. And then the second contingent comes a few months later, 
And that's a mixed contingent. That's got half black, half white men. And they come over and Errol Barrow's one. And another one is a guy called Arthur Waldron. And he comes over. I think he was a either a wireless operator or ear gunner, one of the two. And he's at a dance and he dances with this white lady. And apparently um, there was something, some incident with an American serviceman, a white American serviceman who objected to this. And he writes a letter of complaint and he never gets an answer to that letter. And then on the day that he posted the letter, oh, he writes that, he doesn't get an answer. And then about a week later or so, he, he's actually killed in combat. He was killed in action. So there were cases, and not always just involving Americans, but there were cases where people did complain about things and sometimes they just were ignored. So we do have some of those examples as well. And they went on to enact some pioneering change from the RAF into the US Army Air Service as well, because I, I think I remember reading that Charles Alfred Anderson went on to actually help train the Tuskegee Airmen. So Charles Anderson, he's in America, so he's an African-American. So that's before okay. the Second World War. That's that period in between. But it's another gentleman called Albert Forsyth who comes from Jamaica and he goes to America and he's one of the men who learns to fly. One of the examples of men that I told you learned to fly right. in the in-between years. So he becomes a doctor and it takes him a long time because of the issues in America at the time. And he meets Anderson and the two of them become the Goodwill Flyers. They get a plane with great difficulty. The plane is called the Booker T. Washington. And they fly around the Caribbean region on this flight called the Goodwill Flight. And the purpose of it is to show that black men can fly and also to promote equality and harmony between the races. And then Anderson, later on, he becomes one of the men who helps to train the Tuskegee Airmen. So he's a very important figure in their history, but he actually gets to where he gets, partly because of the contribution of Albert Forsyth, who has more money and is able to help. And they come together and they have a partnership together. But Albert Forsyth, to me, has been a bit forgotten from history, partly because he is part of Britain's story, really, as well as American story, but he's not African-American. I see. I knew there was a connection there. Yeah. And thank you for clarifying it, because that is such an important piece of history. But I feel like we've gone and neglected Cy Grant again now. So now I want to go back to his story. And I'd love to know about what happened in that incident where he was shot down. I mean, do, do we know where he was shot down? Tell us all about it. Yeah, he gets shot down in this village. And I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I know I won't pronounce it correctly. It's in the book. But he gets shot down over Holland. And you would think that being shot down over Holland would be okay because you think, well, but actually, you know, getting shot down over any of these countries, you never really know because although, again, we, we, we always focus on certain sides of the history, but there were men who were shot down over Holland who, you know, they were turned, they were actually killed by Dutch people as well. You know, so not everyone always agrees. You know, there are always two sides in the war and um, you never really know. So he gets shot down 
Kandasi, I live in Denmark, and I can tell you that the average life expectancy of a resistance fighter here was six weeks because it was the own population that that turned them in because the government told them that's what they should do. So it doesn't surprise me that these occupied places were still very hostile. And of course, you know, probably upset as well about the bombing that was going on at this point. Yes, exactly. So he does get shot down over Holland and he hides out in a field for a while. And then eventually he decides to get someone's attention. And the villagers were really, really nice to him. They cleaned him up. They fed him. They kept asking him, when is the invasion going to happen? When is the invasion? When are we going to be liberated? And he, obviously he doesn't know that. That's not, you know, he's not, that's not his pay grade. And even if he did know that, it's probably not information that you should be sharing. No. So he is treated well, but they tell him, we're going to have to hand you over to the authorities now. And of course he doesn't want that, but what can they do? You know, too many people have seen him. And as you said, you can't really assume that everyone is going to be helpful. You know, there are going to be people who may be collaborators. People will talk. And what will happen to them if they don't hand him over? So they hand him over to a local policeman who takes him to his house, gives him tea. They're also really nice to him and they also want to know when the invasion is going to happen. And then, um, yeah, then they hand him over to the Nazis and he's then transported to one of the Zagluft camps. The thing that fascinates me about that period as well, and we had Ben McIntyre to talk about Kolditz on the podcast and some of the hidden histories from Kolditz as well, is that it was, of course, a lot more difficult for people of colour, for black men to escape during this period because you're in occupied Europe. It's largely white and it's a a lot harder to go on the run and to blend in. Exactly. And he did realise that, I think, at one stage, you know, even though he was telling the villagers not to hand him in, I think he realised, well, what are you going to do? It's not that you can exactly blend in and pretend to be a local, so yeah. And he was a commissioned officer, wasn't he? He was, yeah. He was also made a commissioned officer. I think that means technically he could try and escape without being shot, because if you weren't a commissioned officer, you carried a lot more risk if you tried to escape from the camps because you could be shot on sight and so on and so forth. And we know that some commissioned officers were shot as well, but it would have been almost impossible for him to actually try and escape. So does he? I assume he spends the war in that prison camp. Yeah, he does. And he's in a camp with other officers. When he wrote, and I read, and he said that he was the only black man in the camp, I thought, well, that's strange. I'm sure that there were some Tuskegee airmen there. But then I realised what had happened. He was the only black man in the camp when he was there. But later on, as more and more Americans, you know, now obviously Americans have joined the war, and as more and more Americans are getting shot down, including some of the Tuskegee Airmen, they are... what. So this is what I found interesting, because we often focus on the fact that the Geneva Convention said, you know, you can't make men work, and you can't do this, you can't do that. But I believe it also said that they should be kept with people of their own nationality and their own race. But the Nazis don't do that. So the black airmen like Johnny Smythe and Cy Grant, they are just grouped with others of their nationality. So as more and more Americans get shot down, the Nazis then move the British officers to another camp so they can have that other camp just for the Americans. And so the Tuskegee airmen, many of them who were shot down, get put into camps alongside white Americans. So they don't serve together because they are segregated. But when they get shot down, the Nazis put them all in together. 
So there were actually black men in the same camp as Saigon, but he wouldn't have seen them because he would have been moved by the time they arrived. So I thought that was something quite interesting as well. But oh, that's obviously not in the book, but these are just, you know, some of the interesting things that I just found quite fascinating when I was doing all this research. And again, we're talking about officers here. Officers, aren't we? Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, at that period of history and in terms of the way in which I mean there's there's so many strange inconsistencies. It's like the German generals who are captured, high-risk generals who are moved to the US and Canada because then they can't escape back to Europe. Well, the ones in the US are then waited on, served upon by black American citizens. And it's, it's, just, it's just such a remarkably damaging history, isn't it? Yeah. But even the idea of, you know, of the men who did serve, you know, during the Second World War, the black airmen, is at a time when it's empire. It's a time when people are agitating for better conditions where people are talking about, you know, the beginnings of some of the independence movements and the conditions in the Caribbean at the time are so bad, you know, but yet they still come and serve. And there's the color bar here, as I said, as well. So there are a lot of inconsistencies and things that sometimes it's a bit hard to get your head around. It really is. But Cy Grant's story doesn't end there either. And this is in itself. Like you say, he goes on to become a television personality and he writes his memoirs. And if I'm right in remembering, isn't it those villagers who once took him in, washed him up and cared for him, who then go looking for him again to find out what happened to Cy Grant? Yeah, this is what I thought was one of the most beautiful parts of this story. And that's why I had to end the book with this story. So at the time, there was a, a, a young boy called Jus. He was 11 at the time. And actually, when the plane was shot down, I didn't put this in the book, obviously, but when the plane was shot down, a part of it actually killed a farmer's wife, a part of the plane, you know. So, yeah, part of the plane broke and it went through the roof and it killed the wife of a farmer you know, while, while they were sleeping. You know, so these things would have been traumatic. These villagers would have been seeing these planes flying over on their way to bomb Germany, on their way back. They had, you know, they had contact with others as well, you know, on both sides, for sure. Oh, and Holland was heavily bombed before it was taken in the early stages of the war as well. I mean, Rotterdam was just completely obliterated. And this village is um, reasonably near to Schiphol, so there were also some Nazis stationed nearby, apparently. But anyway, Just he, he was 11 years old at the time it happened, and he obviously heard about it. But he also heard lots of confusing stories and he decided that he wanted to know a bit more. But he grew up, he actually worked for the for an airline. I think he worked for a Dutch airline, I think, for a while. And um, later on, then he decided that he would start to piece together the true story of what happened before it was too late. So he spoke to all the villagers that he could find, asked them what they remembered. He was very, very methodical and he wrote it, you know, in a very factual way. And he then reached out to them. They, I think two of the men on the plane hadn't survived. And he reached out to their families and he reached out to the families of the survivors as well. And people like Cy Grant. And yeah, he, he put it all together. And a little booklet, a lovely little booklet about the story of the airmen. And there's actually a little video on YouTube of when Cy Grant went back and met Juste, by that time. Oh, wow. Was he in his back. 60s. Yeah, he went back and they met. A very, very touching little video that was done for BBC. And he was very emotional because, yes, the farmer's wife died. Yes, it was very hard. But I think 
they do still see the bombers as men who were brave and were trying to help liberate them from Nazi rule. So even though they did suffer, they do see these men as heroes. Candace, I couldn't think of a, a better way to end this episode of The Warfare podcast. I mean, you end it better in your book, actually. I'm going to read a little, a little quote from it. <laughs> you say that by aiming for the skies, many of them help to bring about changes that are still making our world a better place. And it's on that note, Candace, that I want you to tell us what's the name of the book and where we can buy it. So the name of the book is The Story of Britain's Black Airmen, and it's widely available. In the UK, it's available from any good bookseller, and it's available online. And outside the UK, people can get it from the book depository with free worldwide delivery. Amazing. Well, Candace, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. You are, of course, always welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.